Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is May 31st, 2016. This is episode 1797 of the Survival Podcast, and it's a Tuesday show. That means it's a Just Jack show, no Monday show this week. We did take Memorial Day off, and When I get done with the intro today, I will have a few things to say about Memorial Day before we get into today's subject, which of course is a subject chosen by you at the TSP Forum in the uh, polls for the Tuesday shows. And today's show is going to be about training dogs to fit in on the homestead, to train dogs to fit in in your homestead. So I will be talking some today about you know training dogs to fit in so that they like don't eat your chickens or, or, or things like that, but... My view is we should all be creating homesteads in some way, shape, or form if we have the opportunity. Even the small urban backyard can be a homestead. So, uh, you know, it's hard for you guys that are apartment dwellers and things like that. But otherwise, we need, if we're going to have a home, we need to be moving it toward homestead status. And of course, the big difference there is a home is just a place we sleep, and a homestead actually provides more for us than four walls and a roof. Okay. So what, I, what I'm kind of getting at there is that this should be beneficial to any of you that have dogs or plan to have dogs in your life. I've been working with dogs um, at what I would call a serious level since I was a child. And what I mean by that is I grew up in a hunting family, and we always had hunting dogs. And when you have a dog that is a, a hunting dog, it requires a certain level of understanding of the animal, beyond people just going out, getting a dog, and teaching it to lock on, walk on a leash and not poop in the house. But we're actually going to talk about training that pup to not poop in the house today as well. But what I, what I mean by that is it's, it's one thing to say you've worked with dogs your whole life because when you were a kid you had a dog. And, and most of us as kids probably had dogs or cats or something like that. It doesn't mean you worked with it. What I'm trying to get across is I've been working with animals for almost my entire life. And I've learned a lot about dog psychology. I guess you'd call it. And uh, you'll hear a lot of what I have to say today if you know who Caesar Milan is, right? The dog whisperer, right? It kind of coincides with that. And I think he's probably the best person in the world at putting these things into words that humans can understand. And I love him and I love his work. He's got a great book out. Definitely somebody you should check out if you want to understand more about dogs. But most of what he says, I knew. I just didn't really know how to explain it. Because when you work with dogs long enough, you begin to interpret their body language and their attitudes, and you begin to actually exude the necessary body language yourself and the necessary energy yourself to be in command. And, and that's a lot of what we're going to talk about today is being in command. Whether you want to be the pack leader or not, you are the pack leader for your dogs, unless you screw it up. And as we'll talk about today... You don't want to screw it up. So what I want you to come away from today's show with is a better understanding of how dogs actually think when they think. That's really, really critical as well. And how to engage in training with your dog so that you can have a great relationship with your dog. My dogs are family. I mean, I, I make no apologies for that. I make no... Um, You know, no exceptions for that. I I have people come here and go, well, can you put the dogs out? I don't like dogs. No, I, I can't. They live here. You don't. You're a visitor. 
right? I'm like, I wouldn't put my son out because you don't like being around children. If you really don't like being around dogs, then don't come to my house. I'm sorry it has to be that way, but it does. Now, if the dog's being annoying or something, I'll put the dog out. But if the dog's you know, laying on the floor and someone's like, can you put the dog out because I don't like being around dogs, you came to the wrong place. That's a family member. So I, I don't make any apologies for that, but I also have to teach, treat the dog differently than I would my son because they think differently and they respond to different things differently. And frankly, a dog matures a lot faster than a person does. And if you don't believe that, well, you can take a six-month-old pup and you can probably let him loose in the woods. And if, if there's enough around and other dogs to pack up with, he'll probably survive. Put a six-month kid out in the woods. Put a six-year-old kid out in the woods. You, you kind of get what I'm saying. Dogs mature emotionally, physically, And in all ways, they mature faster. That doesn't mean that they're superior to people. That means that what their potential is, they get there quicker. Understanding all that will help you better deal with dogs. We'll get to that in just a moment. Before we do, let's go ahead and get a look at historical perspective. The year 1797, because it's episode 1797, I have a mutiny for higher pay. And I have millions for defense, not a cent for tribute, America's first undeclared war. And in other news, the USS Constitution launches. Rear Admiral Horatio Nelson loses his arm. The flag of Italy is first used. And Deutschland über alles, Germany above all else. Joseph Hayden adapts traditional medley for the song in honor Emperor Franz. It will one day become the national anthem of Germany. All right, so out of this I'm going to read for you. Millions for defense, not a cent for tribute, America's first undeclared war. The USA has run up a heck of a bill with France, but does it still owe the money? The original French monarchy is gone, and the government of France keeps changing. They are currently in their third government, depending on how you count it. Frankly, it's a dictatorship. It's also interdicting in American shipping, seizing over 300 American merchant ships. A new treaty must be negotiated, but negotiations cannot start because certain French officials... Want a hefty bribe first. President John Adams recalls his negotiating team. His political opponents assume that since negotiations have failed because of his incompetence, so they demand for the French dispatches. Adams is forced to turn them over, but he substitutes the letters X, Y, and Z for the names of the French officials demanding bribes. It becomes known as the XYZ affair. By the rules of the Senate, Thomas Jefferson is required to read the dispatches out loud. Abigail Adams delights as she watches him squirm. The public is outraged. They shout, millions for defense, not a cent for tribute. Adams manages to avoid outright war. He gets funding for finishing the Navy frigates and runs his own quasi-war and undeclared war with France. This war will continue until 1800. My take by Alex Rugg. So, there was an undeclared war before the 20th century, eh? Although Congress did not specifically declare war against France, they did support and fund the protection of American commercial vessels. It also authorized shooting French naval vessels. While that certainly seemed like a declaration of war, the resolution did not use the word war. Congress could have easily mentioned war, whether Adams liked it or not. Two-thirds of the Congress were Thomas Jefferson Republicans. They could have stuffed war down Adams' throat, whether he liked it or not. Instead, they authorized everything but a formal war. As the modern Supreme Court reads this sort of situation, the court can only intervene when there is a full-blown conflict between the Congress and the President. That did not happen with the Iraq War under President Bush the Younger, and it didn't happen with the Quasi-War under President Adams the Elder. That is interesting. Um, what's interesting to me 
is the concept of actually, do we still owe France the money? Because the monarchy that gave us the money it was dissolved, uh, and then another revolution occurred, and basically that government was dissolved. So this is two governments forward. Technically, I would say you, you still owe them the money. This whole concept, you don't owe them the money because they're different now, doesn't seem to work. And I would, I would liken it to this. Let's say that I am uh, the, the first bank of Jack, and uh, I, I loan you $10,000, a personal credit line. And uh, I have some problems, and uh, uh, the, the first bank of, of Bill comes and says, the first bank of Jack, you're in deep crap, and they do a hostile takeover because I am a public stock, publicly traded company. So they come in like corporate raiders, and they buy up enough stock to take over the company, and they take down the first bank of Jack sign, and they put up the first bank of Bob sign, right? And now it's the first bank of Bob. And you say, well, I didn't borrow money from the first bank of Jack. Well, the first bank of Bob says we, we, we own all assets and liabilities, of the first bank of Jack. Therefore, you owe us. Now, here's the interesting thing. A lot of times in these types of situations where countries get taken over by revolution, they say we don't owe anybody else any money because that was by this evil government that we toppled. Now, if you've done that, then it gets into a quandary, doesn't it? I guess the other thing would be, since um, they've been seizing ships in this situation, 300 American merchant ships, well, what are they worth? You took all those ships. Let's just take that right off the debt. Uh, by the way, we think they're exactly equal. There are a lot of things that could have gone on here, but uh, what we usually end up with when two big kids start pushing us each other around in the playground, so later they're going to fight. Remember what movie that was from. And in this case, at least it didn't go to full-fledged war. But the more things change, the more indeed they stay the same. This concept of war without declaration or clear objectives, sadly, nothing new. Though I think there were pretty clear objectives back there. Anyway, uh, with that, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. You know, I use a Berkey water filter in my home, and I have for over six years now. It's important to me to have the best quality water, but it's also important for me to get great service, pricing, and support, which is why I only deal with one source. That's Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason, one of the top dealers of Berkey in the world with customer service that will blow you away. Learn more at Directive21.com. Again, Directive, and then the number is 21.com. Hey, have you ever thought about making a knife from scratch but just felt it was too complicated? Well, at KnifeKits.com, anyone can learn to make great knives, even me. From the total newbie to the master bladesmith, they have everything you need to make great knives, kydex sheets, and more. Find it all at KnifeKits.com. And with that, um, kind of looking back at our history segment, I want to say a little bit about yesterday, Memorial Day. I put out a blog post And I just kind of always feel it necessary to remind people on Memorial Day, that's not a day to thank veterans. We, we call that day Veterans Day. Okay, That's not a day to tell me, thank me for my service or what have you. Uh, no. Um, Memorial Day is about the men and women who went into combat and died. And that is all. It is not about anybody else. It's about them. Those who never came home, or if they did come home, they came home in a bag or in parts, in pieces. And I know many of you, like me, um, are quite anti-war. And I'd say if you're not anti-war, you probably need to go to a 
psychologist and find out why you're not anti-war. Because if you're not anti-war, you're poor, pro-war, and that means you're pro-killing people. That's the only anti-war does not mean you would never support a war. Anti-war means that war is to always be the last result when you are actually attacked, and it is necessary to prosecute a war to defend yourself. That that's anti-war. That's actually being anti-war. Every way we can to avoid it, until there is no other way, but war. And it amazes me some of the avowed hero worship, the the raw raw patriotism, the blind patriotism of some, and how they get upset when you speak against war, or you speak against things like not having a clear objective. And I, I'd like to quote Dwight Eisenhower. In in regard to saying you're anti-war or that you hate war or you despise war, Dwight Eisenhower said in an address before the Canadian Club in Ottawa, Canada, on January 10th, 1946, fresh off the heels of the greatest victory that any military general had ever accomplished in history, the following: I hate war as only a soldier who has lived it can, only as one who has seen its brutality. It's futility, it's stupidity. You can have respect for men who are willing to fight for what they believe in and still question whether we should be doing that fighting in the first place. And I guess there's no winning for me in the position that I take on this. Being willing to appreciate the sacrifices of men who may have fought in a war that I would have preferred not be fought at all. Because my position is one of logic and reason. And that doesn't seem to fly very well today. We hear nonsensical statements like, you can't support the soldier if you don't support their mission. Well, where do you get that from? Because it sounds good? Because it, it makes your case, which is go blow the shit out of somebody that you don't know, that never did anything to you? I mean, seriously. Of course you can support the man. And you can question the mission or even say this mission is no longer valid. But what we shouldn't do is turn our backs on those who have been willing to sacrifice when many others are not willing to sacrifice anything. The people that, 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 that are the harshest on the soldiers are the ones that would throw a shit fit if they had to give up video games for a week. And I, I get called out all the time by my fellow anarchists of, you know, like, you know, licking the boot of the oppressor or something stupid like that. One can respect the dignity and honor of another even if he himself thinks the choices were wrong. If one has a freaking brain. So I challenge all of us when these times come like this for reflection to use our God-given brains. And to have respect for those that would sacrifice for what they believed in. Even if you believed they believed in error. And I believe many of the men who have died in the last 15 years in this endless war on terror have died in vain, have died for nothing. Nothing is better because of what we've done. Everything is worse. But I know what the intent was. The intent was noble. And as one veteran wrote, and I read this on Facebook yesterday, I didn't fight for your freedoms, but I did fight for you, because in our representative republic, you asked me to. Well, this is soldiers, and I didn't fight for your freedoms in, in Afghanistan. 
wasn't fighting for your right to vote in Afghanistan. Nobody in Afghanistan was trying to prevent you from voting from one of the two next clowns coming. But you asked me to go, and I did. That's the reality. I hope that makes sense. Anyway, on to better things. Let us talk about something that has nothing to do with any misery. One of the happiest topics I could ever be asked to talk about today is dogs. So when this one made the cut in the polling, I was very happy. Because I love to talk about dogs and forming relationships with dogs that make them fit in on the homestead. I want to start out with something that I'm not going to talk about today at all. And many of the things that I will give as advice may not be as good for dogs that are to be livestock guardian dogs. A livestock guardian dog lives with the livestock. It stays there. It doesn't come in the house. It stays with the livestock. A livestock guardian dog looks at the the, the lamb to its left and the chicken to its right and the sheep to its front and the calf behind it, and it says, this is my pack, okay? And that human thing comes over and, 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 and does stuff for us. He's an administrator, and there may be some bond there, but it's a much more business-like relationship between the owner and the dog because the dog has to be centered on the animals in the field. That's his job. That's her job. And they have to be centered on that to the exclusion of play and people. Just like a seeing eye dog has to be centered on his task of leading his human to the exclusion of you know running around and playing with kids in a park. Because it's a purpose-built job. okay. And I am not an expert on livestock guardian dogs by any means. I know enough about them to know there are conflicts with the way I handle dogs and the way I'd have to handle a dog if I brought it here as a true livestock guardian. It doesn't mean my dogs don't provide some protection for my animals. But I'd really be concerned if either of my dogs engaged, let's say, a, a full-grown coyote in combat because my dogs don't have the killer instinct to, 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 to really know what they're up against in that situation. They're not that type of animal. And they could be if they were trained that way, but they're not. They're trained to guard the property from two-legged people and then to chase away everything else. And it's because we live in an area that has very low predator pressure. And because these are the types of animals that we have for our environment, for our situation. So if you hear me say something and you're familiar with livestock guarding dogs and you go, that doesn't work for, for livestock, well, of course it doesn't because that's not what we're talking about. What I want to talk about today is how to turn your dog into most, you know, most and foremost is a good member of your family. One that doesn't eat your birds or go in the trash or pee in the house or hurt visitors or let strangers in unchallenged. I mean, no other family member would be expected to behave that way, would they? Think about it that way. Your, your children are trained that when someone comes over and you say, hi, this is, you know, this is Mr. Fred from next door, they're supposed to say, hi, Mr. Fred, and be nice to him, right? Because he was brought in. But if, if Mr. Fred's out, like, sneaking into your gate or something and they don't know who he is, and mom and dad to say it was okay, they need to sound the alarm. Mom, dad, there's somebody out there. And if they are in charge because they happen to be at the door, and that guy wants in, and you're not there because you're in the other room, they don't open the door. They don't let a, a stranger in unchallenged, but they let someone that's received in completely accepted. Okay? That's what you want out of your dog. You wouldn't let your kids run around and pee on the floor. Right, You train them to use the toilet. We train a dog to use the outside. Okay, that's, that's, that's just a different way to think about this than I think most people tend to. 
that we're talking about a family member, and a family member has rules of the house. But those rules have to be caught differently. As a child grows and gains words and language and understanding, you can reason with a child. A child can be reasoned with. A, a child can be bribed. We can bribe a dog, but not the way you can bribe a child. You can bribe a, a dog now, but not for later. In other words, you can't tell a dog, dog, if you do good today, I'll give you a biscuit tonight. But when a kid's old enough, you can say, if you do good today, you know, you can have dessert after dinner tonight. If you're not good, you're not getting dessert. I'm not saying that's a good tactic with a child, but it is doable. Where the dog can't understand the words, and even if he could, we'll get to it, but they don't think that far ahead. Okay? So what we're talking about is dog psychology 101. Dogs live in the now. Dogs live for this moment, right now, this second. They live with about two seconds of history in their head, and about two seconds from now in their anticipation. And that's about it. Now, it doesn't mean a dog can't be a little bit more calculating than that. It doesn't mean that a good, well-trained dog that's, a, let's say, a hunting dog doesn't have discipline to be able to hold and realize if I wait, that animal's going to move and then I can get it cornered and get, get locked into point and hold that bird in a bush. Or that if I take this, this different route, I'm going to cut this rabbit off and push it back to my human. It doesn't mean they can't do some of those calculating things, but they don't live in yesterday. Yesterday's gone. Now, if, if there was abuse... The scars of yesterday are there emotionally and spiritually for the animal. And if there was really good, loving, warm environment for the animal, then the goodwill is still there. But it's not like you that sits there and goes, you know, when I was five, my dad didn't come to my first t-ball game. No. No. That's not how dogs think. They live now. So your training needs to be in the now. If you discipline a dog five minutes or five hours after they've done something for that action with some sort of negative enforcement, yelling, hitting, shaming, whatever, that's abusive because the animal cannot connect back, right? And I know you see people with the trashes everywhere and they say, what did you do? And the dog's all like this, you know, okay. Maybe if the trash is still a mess and they see it when you say that, there's some connection, but it's weak. Because the dog will behave, most dogs, if you're, if, if they do that, if they have that behavior in them and there's nothing wrong and they didn't do a thing and you go, what did you do? They start sulking. They're responding to you. You're being dominating in a way that says you've done something wrong and they may have no freaking clue they still behave that way because they live in the now. Discipline, when you're taking corrective action, needs to be immediate and only what's necessary to get your point across. It's often simply a no and a pinch behind the ear. And it's not a hard pinch. It doesn't have to be. It's a mimic bite like a pack leader would just, hey, you're, you're, you get in line. Okay? Or a lot of times what I use is just the two fingers and just a tap. And I'm talking about a tap like if I did it to you, you go, what's up, man? Like, you, you would just think I was trying to get your attention. But when it comes with a verbal correction, no. That just brings the attention to me, the pack leader. But it has to be immediate. If, if you find a dog is having a problem with digging holes in your yard, you need to set up a situation where you can catch them at the very initiation of the digging and correct it then. Taking them to the hole and putting their nose in it doesn't work. I don't understand what you're upset about. There's a hole here. He doesn't understand. Well, I'm upset because you dug the hole. They don't get it. 
taking a dog and shoving its face in poop. Doesn't work. It doesn't help. Don't do it. All you're doing is upsetting and abusing the animal. Okay, and if I sound a little animated, it's because, not because I'm angry, because most of that stuff, if it's not done by an asshole, you know, if it's, 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 look what you did. It's, it's, it's relatively harmless, but it's ineffective. And then you end up frustrated, and your energy goes to frustrated energy. That means you're not in control. When you lose control, then the dog has no sense of control, and then their behavior becomes worse. It's, in some ways, it is like dealing with children. You know what? When you yell at kids, hey, knock it off, whatever. You know, a lot of times you just keep carrying on. But let, you know what? We don't put the, the, the fear in a kid that they're really going to be in trouble when you say something like, listen to me very carefully. You need to stop this right now. And you sound completely calm and completely relaxed and completely what? In control. Because when you sound like you're out of control, kids are going to push it. Same thing with dogs. But the kid pushes it because the kid has a psychology that says, what can I get away with? The dog psychology is more, I, 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 there's, a, there's, a, there's, you know, like this, this sense of lack of control, lack of leadership. I don't know what to, I'm supposed to do now. I'm not, I'm not the, I'm not the alpha dog and, and the alpha dog is off the rails and doesn't know what to do. Something's wrong. It's not so much that like your leadership is weak or something. You lacking control, that energy is, it's, the dog senses this. They sense it by your heartbeat, your tone of your voice, your perspiration. They can smell, they can smell changes in the chemicals of your body. And, and what they're reading is there's, there's something wrong. So you're trying to get them to sit and they don't want to sit because they're on alert. Things like that. So, so you have to keep your discipline to the immediate consequence and you have to maintain control at all times. Yelling is to make sure the dog knows you're serious. Okay, so yelling is the dog is real about to run out, and you say don't. Okay, that has a place, but just you berating a dog by yelling at him, it doesn't work. It's not good for humans either, but it really doesn't work for the dog. The dog just hears blah 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 blah, just knows you're loud. They they have certain words they learn, and you need to learn the words your dog knows, like like and teach them stop, sit, don't, no. These things then can be given one time with force when necessary if the dog looks like it's going to go off the reservation, so to speak. Another thing is, discipline is a means to training. It is not training. Training is to condition an organism to behave a certain way at, at, a, at a level where it really can't do anything any differently. Okay? Um, so an example of that is, I'm trained to not touch the metal handle of a cast iron potter pan. Because occasionally I've thought it wasn't that hot and I've done it and it hurts. So when I see that handle, if there's any possibility that it's hot, I grab a pot holder. I've been, I've, you know, I've trained myself to do that, but that's training. I won't forget it. It doesn't go away. It, it, it's ingrained. I can take three small trees and, and train them into a braid, and they're trained, right? But I can't discipline that tree. I can't yell at it. I can't punish it to make it go into a braid, right? So the discipline for me was the pain. The discipline for the tree was mechanical, 
It was mechanically forced into a braid to appear decorative in a way that it would not otherwise grow. Well, I saw one guy on Facebook, he trains trees to grow chairs. So when it's done, they just cut four branches off the ground, and you, and you cut the top off and finish, and you have a tree. It's, it's trained to the shape of a, a chair. That discipline is also mechanical. So discipline is, discipline is the means by which we attain training. So if you're disciplining properly, you should be disciplining less every day. Just like raising, I say that's different, but there's a lot of corollaries there. I say parents are doing their job when they're working themselves out of a job as quickly as possible. Not out of being mom or dad, but out of being the disciplinarian. Less rules every year, because the child now has enough discipline and enough training to self-regulate. Dog work the same way. So people, you see beating dogs, hitting them all the time, stuff like that. That is abusive, and it's not necessary. It doesn't work well. Now, occasionally, I'll grab my hat off my head, and I'll whack Charlie in the ass with it when he just can't get himself under control. He's too excited. But it doesn't hurt him. I don't, you know, beat him, you know, or hit him in the head. Tap to the ass. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, okay, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. Because his dogs want to please you. Okay? They want to please you. They just have to know what you expect from them. Dogs are happy when they feel like they've pleased you. You're the pack leader. And if you've ever seen a dog when it feels like it did what you wanted it to do, and it, it did it right, and it knows you're happy, it's happy, right? It's oh, they're kind of dancing around, and that's why I, 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 I use negative consequences when necessary, but I'm much bigger on positive reinforcement. So one of the things I've taught Charlie to do is move ducks off the porch, or when they go in the garage and I don't want them there, move them out of the garage. This was hard for him because I had to first train him to not eat them because he wanted to eat them. Dog's a pit bull cross with a pointer. The fact that he can work with birds seems, it's not actually amazing, but it seems ridiculous. But it's just about training. But so what we had to teach him was, yes, now I'm saying you can push them. You can, you can go, you know, even kind of chew on their tail a little bit as they go. You can be a little aggressive, but you have to hold yourself. So what, stop. That's enough. Things like that. But when he does it perfectly and all I say is, okay, that's it, you're done, and he stops, then you go love him up, right? Then you rub him, you pet him, you, good boy, you did good, right? For the girl, dog, good girl, you did good. Because what that does is say, you've done your job well. And if the dog understands when you give a command what you want, and it expects that after it does it, that you're going to give it affection, It's going to do it. This is where I'm, you know, breaking from livestock guardian dogs. It's not the same psychology, right? Because we have a professional relationship with guardian dogs. We have a personal and professional relationship with our family member dogs. Okay? But they want to please you. The other thing you need to understand is that dogs communicate 99% with body language, not sounds. Now, you're going to use commands, verbal commands. But... Whether or not they listen to you has a lot more to do with how you present yourself, how your energy level is, and, and whether you're afraid or whether you're in command or whether you're in control or not. And different ways that you stand or posture can damage the willingness of the dog to comply. Okay? Again, we're not talking about precision-trained attack dogs that just have words that are like, a, you know, give the command that the dog does it. We're talking about family member dogs and 
The other side of the body language thing is you need to understand their body language. You need to understand their body language. You see head go down and ears go back, that's, that's, that's threatening. Right? That's, especially when there's another animal around or another person around and they, they have that, you need to understand it's aggressive behavior. And if it's warranted aggressive behavior, okay, i.e., it is a strange animal on your property you want to be chased away, then you encourage it. If, when it is not acceptable behavior, i.e., the cat has come near the dog's food bowl, correction immediately. Ear tap. No, absolutely not. Give the dog the food bowl. Take the food bowl away. No, we don't do that. Give them the food bowl back. Now, I'm going to tell you to do certain things today. You need to know your animal to be able to do these, and you need to be conditioning the animal from the time it's a pup to do these things, or they can actually be dangerous and encourage the dog to bite you. So please use caution with what I'm saying. This is what I do. I get bad behavior from the dog. I take the bowl away from the dog. I pet him, tell him to sit down. I give him his bowl back. I let him eat for a while. And I take it away. And I pet him and I talk to him and I give him the bowl back. What I'm retraining the animal to understand is no one will take your food from you. You do Because a dog's natural instinct, defend my food. Because there's that wolf instinct, that coyote instinct, right? That dingo instinct, that wild canine instinct that food is, is scarce. It has to be protected and defended from enemies. And the domestic dog has lost some but not all of that. There's that little... In the back of the head, in that, that two seconds before, two seconds later, right? Two seconds before and after, in the now, I have to defend this food. So by relearning over and over again that your food can go away, it will come back, you'll never starve here. You don't have to worry about the cat getting near the food bowl. You get into a situation where your animals are not aggressive toward each other. That's another technique I've done. I've done this with every dog we've ever owned. I remember being a kid and my family having dogs and neighbors having dogs and, oh, don't go near him, he has a bone. He could bite you. And you walk near the dog and I was like, because he has a bone. Uh-uh, no. I, the first pup I ever had, I'm like, that's just not going to be the way it is. That didn't make sense to me, even as a kid. So I get a pup, I give them a, a, a bone, a chew toy, whatever. They chew it, take it away, play with them, give it back. Take it away, give it back. Take it away, give it back. And when you're done with the game, the dog always gets it in the end. He gets to keep it. So my dogs can have a chew or whatever, and people walk right past them. They don't get defensive about it. They don't get upset about it. You can walk over and take it from them and give it back to them. That's just what the person does. They don't take your food away from you. They give you food. There's no reason to be upset about a person or another animal because there's no scarcity of food here. That's that's the the conditioning that you're trying to get through to the dog in that thing. But again, you need to understand the body language. And then the last thing is, just because you're a human, you are the pack leader. Any dog you bring into your home, because you're able to do things it can't, you get the food and put it in the bowl. You pick the food up. You open the door and let it out. You open the door and let it in. In the dog's mind, oh my God, this being can do everything. This is the pack leader. The only way you'll lose that status is if you screw it up. Don't screw it up. How can you screw it up? By not being authoritative. That doesn't mean not being loving, but you can be loving and authoritative at the same time. By trying to treat your dog like a child, using the baby talk with a dog. They're not babies. They're not people. Don't treat them like people. Treat them like dogs. 
And I, I think some people, you know, like, that sounds harsh. They are dogs. And if you knew how I treated my dogs, it wouldn't be harsh at all. When I hear somebody say, you know, something like a person was treated like a dog, I'm thinking, well, if they're treated like my dog, they're treated pretty good. My dogs have better treatment than a lot of humans do. What I'm talking about is the psychological treatment. Dogs, again, they live in the now. They expect authority. They expect control. And I don't mean control of them. I mean control of yourself. You have to have self-discipline and self-control. If you go off the hinges, the dog goes off the hinges. In some ways because it's mimicking you, but in more ways because you've destabilized the system of order. And dogs are not wolves. And they are not coyotes. And there's some fundamental differences over the years of the human-dog bond that are phenomenal and not really well understood or explained, but are noted. For instance, they've done research with wolves where they take wolf pups, and the wolf pup is, is raised as a pup, as a dog, as close to a dog as you can get. Those dogs are then, wolves, are then bred to a second generation, and the pup is brought up with an adult wolf and an adult human on them all the time. And these animals are benign, as benign as a wolf can be. They are not aggressive toward humans. You can hand feed them. They don't get aggressive. They, for all intents and purposes, it looks like a completely tamed wolf, which is what it is. But when a human is trying to work with that wolf and does something like point and say, over there, these wolves don't respond. They don't take direction. Now, if the person walks over there, they may follow or they may look what direction that person's going and then they'll see, oh, that's what, so they'll, they'll realize, oh, there's something over there he's interested in and they'll go there. But they don't take direction by being pointed. They take direction only by your actual movement or your gaze. Where a dog, when you point, even dogs that aren't very well trained tend to very quickly comprehend the human saying to look over there. There's something there. They get that. That shows a mental link a an energetic link between humans and dogs that does not exist in wild canines. And there's other examples, but that's the most prominent one. And you have to understand that to be a pack leader. That there's a higher level of connection. It's not like the lion tamer at the circus that can make the lion jump through the hoop. That lion's jumping through the hoop due to training and discipline, yes, but it doesn't have the type of connection with humans. Because for thousands of years, we've bred dogs and we've lived with dogs and dogs have lived among us. They have evolved to be the species that really is most adapted to human languages, uh, human uh, emotions. They break rules that wild canines would never break. Dogs smile. Wild canines don't smile, especially at each other. If there's a wolf, and you know the dog has that big pant, and they got the teeth out, and they're like, and you can tell that dog is freaking smiling, right? Uh, if, if a wolf did that to another wolf, the other wolf would feel threatened. You're showing the teeth as a sign of aggression. The dog has lost that. The dog knows if I curl my lips and show my teeth in a certain way, that's a sign of aggression. And if I see that in another dog, then I know that dog's but those gums come up. But just because the teeth are out is not aggressive. But to the wild canine, when the teeth are out, it's aggressive. They better be doing something, or it's aggression. That's another example. So let's start about some basic training. Because I think that if you get the basic core down, then training the dog to do or not do other things becomes easy. So the first one is house training. 
house training is the one that people have so much trouble with. It's the one where they do stupid crap like rub the dog's nose in it, etc. And they just make it harder than it has to be. The only thing you need to do to train a pup to uh, use the bathroom outside is some very basic crate training. Now, some people have a big problem with crates. They think it's mean to put the dog in such a small cage and um, it's going to be horrible for the dog and whatever. Okay, again, this is not a person. It's not a baby. And by the way, those same people that say that will put a baby in a playpen. Just saying. Or a crib. I'm just saying. Okay. Um, and, and they think that's okay because you've got to protect the, the baby from falling out of the bed. Well, sure. It's absolutely okay. But it is kind of ironic that then they turn around and say, well, we can't put the dog in essentially a dog crib. Dogs are den creatures by nature. Canines like to feel surrounded. That's why they have some of those those like jacket things for dogs that get upset during thunderstorms and what have you. And you put them on there and they put a compression on the dog's side and the dog calms down because when it feels that way, okay, it feels safe. This is why your dog, when it lays down at night next to your bed, puts its back to the bed and its, its attention forward because the back is protected. So the crate is not evil. And if you train a dog right to a crate, you can take the crate away, and you can need to take the dog somewhere in a crate. You can bring the crate in. The dog hasn't seen the crate in years. You open the door, go in your box, and the dog goes in. You close it, and he sits down and goes, okay. That's how our dogs are. We can put them in the crate like that. And neither one's been in for two years, I guess. But if we need it for transportation or whatever, they'll go right in there. And that is valuable in of itself. So with, with crate training, what we're going to do to house train is we're going to not let the dog have the opportunity to pee or poo in the house. And if we do this for a length of time, it will be so foreign to the dog to use the bathroom in the house that it just won't do it. So the way that looks is we have our puppy. We take our puppy outside. We do not let the puppy back into the house until the puppy has gone to the bathroom. Hopefully both numbers, but at least he's gone pee. And then we bring the puppy in the house. We observe the puppy running around the house and what have you for a certain period of time. And at any time, we learn the body language. If that puppy looks like it's going to potty, we pick it up and we take it outside. If it's going, we walk with it peeing. We'll wash our hands. It'll be okay. We put the dog outside. We let it pee outside. Hopefully, it never actually gets a drop on the floor. Okay, Not because it's a big deal to clean it up, because we're trying to get the puppy to understand that outside is where I pee. If you do this consistently for about a week, the dog will pretty much be done. He won't pee in the house. And what we do then is after the dog's been in the house for maybe an hour, they have a certain amount of control they can initiate. We're going to put them in their crate. While we're doing other things, while we can't pay attention, while we leave, they're going to be in their crate. They don't want to pee or poo in their crate because then they have to sit in it. They might do it once or twice, but they learn from that. This is unpleasant. So they start to learn control, to hold it. And then when we let that dog out of the crate, we're going to open the door, we're going to pick the dog up, we're going to walk right to the door, and we're going to put it down off the concrete into the grass. It is probably going to go about its business pretty quick and find a place to go relieve itself because it's now been required to hold it. And what the animal then becomes programmed to accept, this is where I pee, I don't pee in there. And it's that simple. And people make it hard, and people make it complicated. I see people with dogs that are a year old, and they're still having accidents. The dog's not having an accident, okay? An accident is, you were a dumbass and left the dog home for 12 hours with no way for the dog to get out of the house and no one to check on the dog. And eventually the dog said, I can't do it anymore, and picked a spot. 
and, and, and had an accident. Okay, That's an accident. The dog standing right in front of you when it could ask to go out the door that lifts its leg on your couch, that's not an accident. You failed to train the dog. And if you use crate training, all of that goes away. And then there's no yelling, there's no hitting, and you don't want to be yelling at a puppy. right? Puppies are can be damaged psychologically right? at that point. So we don't want to be using much negative reinforcement on a pup. I'm talking about a little pup, right? A little young pup. Okay, the next thing, once we get that done, the, then this is where I feel we need to start working on the commands that are the core commands. Sit, stay, come, leave it, take it. If you can get a dog to sit on command, to stay, to come, to leave something you've put down that it would like to eat, to know when it's okay to take it, everything else will get easy from there. Because the dog has learned enough discipline and enough understanding and enough conditioning. And I'll tell you the truth, if you start young, it can take longer. If you start trying to teach a puppy this when they're still like a little fuzzball and just, you know what I'm talking about, it can take a long time. But you bring me a dog that is a year old with no training on these basic commands, and the maximum I need to teach that dog those commands is a week. When we got Max, he was 18 months old, so a year and a half old. He didn't know sit, he didn't know stay, he didn't know come. He was a good dog, okay? He wasn't like a disaster. He was house trained. He got along well with smaller animals, no problems with the cats. He, he knew how to go outside, but if you said come, he might come because he thought you wanted him, but he really didn't have the command come. And he would run up to you and go, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Okay, sit. And it just look at you like you're crazy. You could tell the word did not mean anything to him. It took two days. Two days. Sit, stay, easy. German Shepherds are smart dogs, but it's just the way that it's done. So sit to me is the easiest command to start with. And it gives the dog something to do that you can mechanically initiate that then you can reward. Okay? And to me, the sit command, the easiest way to get the mechanics behind that is a little bit of Hakido, right? A little bit of uh, two, two, point, two pressure points. The chest up and the butt down. That's it. Or the collar, and we pull the collar back as we push the butt down, and we say sit. And when the dog said sit, good dog. We don't need to give him a treat. He sat. He didn't you know, save Timmy from the well. All he did was sit down. Just some love. Good dog. Good boy. And once we get that going on, We just wait till we get to the point where we can finally say sit, and the dog sits by itself. We use less and less mechanical correction, and we're going to keep these training sessions like five minutes long. It's a puppy. okay? It's the same stupidity of taking a five-year-old and expecting them to sit in a classroom for eight hours every day. That's why, that's why they say so many of them have ADD, because a five-year-old should not be in a classroom for eight hours per day. But a puppy has even less of an attention span. And even a young dog, when we start getting like four months old, you know, maybe 10-minute training sessions. But we're going to get the sit command. Once we have the sit command, now we have something we can work on next. Now we can work on stay. So now we can say sit, the dog sits. We pet the dog, good boy. And we use stay and we use a, 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 a physical command to go with the verbal command of stay. And if you look at a dog, and a dog looks at you, and you do certain things, there's a certain, remember I talked about there's this connection between humans and dogs, pointing causes the dog to look where you're pointing, and this doesn't happen in wild canines? Well, another command that's intuitive is the hand up, like a cop telling you to stop. That's why they use that command on us, stop. So we say stay, and we put that hand out. 
and we take a couple steps backwards. And, we, and when they try to get up, they're getting up. So you need them to reboot. So sit, because that command is already known. See, we start with a command until it is known, and then we add a command. We can use the first command to reboot the second command. Okay? So we say sit. We take a couple steps backward. After we've said stay with our hand up, and we keep our hand up as we back up. And if the dog moves, we say sit, sit, until the dog sits, and then we back up again, stay, stay, stay. And once the dog stays, we walk back over to the dog, good dog, we love him up. We do this, and in a day, so we do one day for sit, the next day we do stay. And it really can be that fast, and it can be really, really, really easy. Maybe two days of sit training, and then one day of stay training. Now, so we've done sit, we've done stay. Right? Now we're going to teach come. Come's easy. Because we already know sit, we already know stay. Come's natural. That's why, the, that's why stay was complicated. We don't start with the easy thing for the dog to get his head around. We start with the more complicated thing. If we started out with come, it's difficult to teach stay. If we start with stay, it's easy to teach come. Got it? So sit, stay, walk away, stay, come. And you give your command for come, which is the hand forward, or whatever works for you, but large movement commands are best. Or your hand, like one of my commands for my dog when I want him to come is my hand to my, to my thigh. I'll slap my thigh. Come here. So come. Dog comes. Now, what you're tempted to do is say, good boy. No, because now we're in a state where we're dislocated. We're now in a state where I'm kind of up. I'm moving around. I haven't completed a task yet. So sit. Stay, come, sit. Good dog. Now we're starting to get this, this, this relationship built. Then we were going to move on to take it and leave it. These commands are more about teaching the dog control than showing off as a trick or for practical purposes, though they can be very, very critical to keep your dog safe in certain instances. But as you might imagine, take it and leave it is going to involve a treat, a goodie, a piece of hot dog, a piece of beef jerky, a dog jerky, a, uh, a Scooby snack, whatever your dog likes. And what we're going to do is we're going to start out by sit, stay, come, sit, good dog, reward. We're going to go ahead and give them one. okay? Because now we've put the mind into the zone of... We're in training. Now, remember I said about two seconds is about as long as we think backwards as a dog? So as soon as that dog eats that treat, good boy. We're going to take one, we're going to put it on the ground, we're going to say, leave it. Leave it. And when the dog reaches for it, we're going to grab the dog by the collar. We're going to say, leave it. Leave it. Until that dog understands, the human that gives me food has said, I can't have this right now. And because he's the pack leader, he gets to do that. That's already programmed into your dog if you don't screw it up. They already comprehend this. That when an alpha male kills something, it decides who eats what when. And it goes first. So you've just said, that's not, you're not doing that, right? So you keep doing that. And when they, when they go to break that, you can also use the stay command. Because the stay command means to stay where I'm at. So stay, leave it. Leave it. And you might have to physically restrain the dog and not let them have it. And then after you've said leave it a couple times, just wait. 
Just wait. Have a waiting game. And, and all you're waiting for that dog to do is to not be trying to get the treat. The second the dog relaxes, good dog, take it. Take it and point to it. So you say take it and you point at the treat. The dog is going to do it like that. Because remember, leave it's the hard part, take it's the easy part. What we've just done now is we've run through the whole training regime, sit, stay, come, sit, leave it, take it, and the end result is the dog got a treat twice. Now, this is a fun game. I like this game with my human. I hope we do this again. So guess what we're going to do? We're going to do it again. Sit, stay, back away, come, sit, good boy, treat, good boy. Second treat, leave it, take it. If that dog, if you, if you do that that second time, And you don't really have to restrain that dog. You say, leave it, and the dog just stops, and you can tell he's stuck. Immediately say, good boy, take it. Oh, now it's on. Now I get the game. Now I See, this is how this type of behavior is encouraged really, really quickly. And we just keep working on it. In about a week of that training, you should have a dog that, you know, barring putting down, you know, a steaming, good-smelling piece of bacon and walking out of the room, basic take-it-and-leave-it commands are good, sit, stay, come, commands are good. We now have a dog that can be pretty much socially responsible because I have enough commands to build on and I have enough commands that if the dog is in a situation that I don't like, I have ways to stop that behavior. I can tell the dog to come to me. I can tell the dog to stay. I can tell the dog to sit. All of those things stop the dog from behaviors that I don't want the dog engaging in, like jumping on people. But remember I said leave it and take it can be one of the most important commands to teach your dog Okay, you're outside. You see a snake, a venomous snake. Your dog sees a snake and goes for it. Leave it. Immediately. Leave it. Okay, now you don't have a giant vet bill because the dog knows that command. You go out and you see a big pile of something dead on the road full of maggots and the dog runs out next to you. This happened to my Brittany Spaniel. Um, unfortunately, we weren't there to see it, but the dog ate a rabbit full of maggots. And we ended up having to induce vomiting because of concerns and things like that. By the way, the way you do that is with a small amount of hydrogen peroxide poured down the dog's funnel. Bird dogs have funnels. You lift their head up and you pull their cheek out. And if you pour liquid into that cheek, it will go right down their throat. You don't have to force it down with a syringe. And a little bit of that, and, bleh, and out he came. But... Had we been there, a simple command of leave it would have, would have saved us from that. So there could, there's often times where the dog could want to eat something that could be dangerous for the dog or harm the dog, and that command saves it. Um, there are some other commands. No, I think, is a very important command. No is just whatever you're doing is not acceptable. But no is a natural training command that occurs because you, you just decide at certain points to say no. And the dog starts to associate no with a negative behavior. Whatever I'm doing, i got to stop because the pack leader said no. We move on from there to, like, tricks. I think there's some good in tricks, and I think there's some bad in tricks, and I think there's some ugly in tricks. Um, to me, all of my dogs have always been able uh, taught to give me their paw, right, the shake hands bit. The shake hands bit is wonderful because I can check the dog's front paws without any kind of problem whatsoever. It also builds on the relationship. And the dogs like to do it. If you teach a dog to do it, they like to do it. i got to tell the story of how my wife taught Lakota, our Siberian Husky, to shake hands. Lakota was the only dog that I ever gave up trying to teach to shake hands. Every other dog that I've ever tried to shake hands usually takes me about 15 minutes 
15 minutes with a treat reward. Give me your paw. Pick it up. Good dog. Give him a treat. Give me your paw. Pick it up. Good dog. Give me, give me your paw. And then you just kind of tap the back of the paw. And as soon as the paw raises up, you grab it. Here's the treat. Dog works this out pretty quick. Oh, I do this. And hard dogs all the time almost sit. And they start lifting their paw. Like, am I getting a treat? You know? No, stay. All right? So it was really easy. And we got Lakota. He was like two years old, maybe closer to three years old. And he had no training either. And we learned sit and stay and take it and leave it and all that other stuff. And it was kind of funny because the way I am with dogs, look, he was very stubborn. He was one of the most stubborn animals I've ever, ever known. Old number seven, if you know who old number seven was, had nothing on this dog. Who knows who old number seven was? Tell me in the comments today. Anyway, so dog's stubborn as hell, and she'd be telling the dog to sit. And he would, he would howl and bark and stomp his front feet and refuse to sit down. And she'd say, come tell your dog to sit. And I'd walk over and go, Lakota, would you please sit for me? And he'd just sit. And she'd get so mad and say that was wrong. She decides she's going to teach him how to shake hands. So she'd bring Blackie, our black lab that we lost a few years ago, in. And they both come in every morning for their morning biscuit. And she'd tell Blackie to sit. And Blackie would sit. And she'd tell Blackie to shake. And Blackie would shake. And Blackie would get his biscuit. She'd tell Lakota to sit. He would sit. And she'd say, shake. And she, he, he wouldn't do it. So she'd put the biscuit where he could see it on the counter where he couldn't reach it. And then she'd walk away. And she'd come back in a little later, call him back in, and try to get him to shake. By this point, the dog knew what she, what she wanted. And it took her about a week of that to break him down to where he would shake. And then he actually really liked doing it. He would do it all the time. He would do it when you didn't really ask him to. right? That's good because you've, you've conditioned a, a, a response that's usable in other ways. Okay, uh, Another... Um, I guess you'd call it a trick, but to me it's more of like a it's crossover, command slash trick. Lay down. So down. That could go in the basic training commands. It could go under tricks. But down's easy. And down, if you have a dog that'll sit, usually just by putting your fingers on the ground in front of the dog, saying down, the dog will just come kind of down to your fingers and follow the hand. If not, a little pressure on the back. Down's good because it allows you to have the dog rest. So there's people over, there's activity, the dog wants to be involved. You don't want the dog involved in the activity right now, so sit down, lay down, down. Dog lays down. That's a, sim, it's a sign that every the, the pack leader would never have you lay down without forcing you down while everything was at ease. The, the, the pack leader, if there was an alert, would want you up and at him. So by just by having them lay down, it just kind of centers them into all is well. All's good. Okay. But it also is necessary to go to the next the next trick, which is a true trick, which is play dead. I always teach my dogs to play dead. And that's just play dead, over, you know, all the way down, however you want, whatever. Choose a command and stick to it, but you just kind of push the dog over really gently. Now, you are going into an area where the language of the dog is you are being somewhat aggressive if the dog doesn't understand that it's in fun and play. Because when one dog puts another dog down, specifically with a mouth to the neck, it can be playful or it can be assertive and aggressive. And you have to read your dog's body language to make sure he understands we're doing this as fun. Because there might be other times when we might actually put the dog down with a, with a hand bite to the neck. And I'll talk about that in a bit too. But we want to teach that dog to lay down on his side and play dead. And then we give him a treat. And that's just a mechanical repeat, get up. Sit, treat. Always when you're going to treat, treat the dog in some state of something other than standing. So even if they did a good job laying down, playing dead, 
then when you get them up, have them sit before they get the treat. So they're in a sense of control. Or another thing I'll do, I'll teach the dog to play dead. I'll put the treat right next to the dog's nose, and we, we start stacking commands. Leave it. Leave it. Okay, take it. And when they get up after they eat it, good dog. Okay? These are valuable commands as well. This is why it's a valuable command. I've taken the dog to the vet now, and the vet needs to examine the dog's belly or whatever and wants to put a 150-pound dog up on a table. Um, no, we're not putting the 150-pound dog on the table. He's got bad hips. He could get hurt. It doesn't really make sense. Well, I need to examine his stomach. Oh, fine. Down, over. There you go. Dog's laying there. Here's my belly, right? By, by having that, because a lot of vets, when I've had vets that just, they can't get their head around the fact that a dog, because a, a vet is a scary place for a dog, right? They don't, they don't act the way they do at home. But when, they, when you act the way you do at home, when you're at the vet's, And when you have a good vet that understands dog language and you, you give a command, the dog just responds. Okay, you need the dog to lay down. That's wrong. Down. Over. On the back. Yeah. Right. So all of these types of tricks have advantages. Now we can, uh, we can take a look at the back feet. So we can examine them to see if there's any kind of stickers or burrs in them. We've built trust with the dog. So if there is something that's causing the dog pain, we're able to examine it without the dog snapping at us and what have you. Um, and then we can also get, you know, help for the dog. So that's good. The, the, to me, the bad of tricks is when we, when we train a dog to the, to the purpose of our own entertainment, um, with tricks, I think sometimes it can go too far and we're doing it just for ourselves. If the dog enjoys it, that's fine. And there are dogs that legitimately love things like jumping through hoops and jumping over, uh, you know, hurdles and, uh, doing all ki types of tricks. And if the dog likes it, that's fine. But most dogs, I, most dogs I find, have kind of a limit to how much stuff they want to do like that. And I think we need to find the balance. And if we have a dog that loves it, that wants to be the party clown and do all the tricks and, and, and walk on its back feet and whatever, that's fine. But I don't think that stuff's necessary. And it doesn't, that doesn't say to me that you have a well-trained dog. That means you have a dog that obeys certain commands. A well-trained dog will, will do well even when it's not being given commands because it's been trained to be a good citizen of the household, so to speak. Um, leash training. This is so much about energy. My wife and I we used to walk our dogs all the time, and she'd, she'd take Blackie, and he was like a bull. He would just, like, I, I mean, just like a bull. Front legs just going, bear down, and she would just be fighting him the entire time. I'd take the leash, and he'd just heal. And she I don't know how you do that. It's your energy. You expect that he's going to act that way. I expect that he's not going to act that way. I expect that he's going to act this way. And I exude that expectation. And I don't really know how to explain this. And I certainly don't know how to train another person to do this. But I'm tell, I can tell you this is real. This is when you say somebody's a dog person or like Caesar's the dog whisperer. That's all this is. It's a certain mannerism. It's a certain expectation. Does it work on all dogs all the time? No. But it works on most dogs most of the time. And that's good enough. And if you have a relationship with your dog and you give that, that energy signature when you're walking a dog on a leash, it, it, it works out perfectly. Um... The other thing is, if you want the dog to heal, then heal means heal. It doesn't mean sort of heal. And, it, and every time we break from heal, we get an immediate correction, which is a quick jerk of the leash and a no. By now, the dogs learn no. Okay, I'm not supposed to do that. We don't get upset. We don't get tense. We just walk. We're walking down the sidewalk. There's a dog behind a fence. The dog cannot get to us. Our dog's going to want to get to us. Most people start getting all tense, and they start telling the dog, no, before they even get there. 
You need to act like that dog does not exist. He's not even there. And you just walk past at the same speed. You don't speed up. You don't slow down. And every time your dog breaks, no. 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 And when you get when you walk past it together, you walk right through there, then the, the dog says, oh, okay, this situation does not warrant going on alert. My human never went on alert. My human never got upset. My human never exuded nervous energy. My human was never worried. We do the same thing when we're walking by people. And if people want to pet the dog and we're socializing the dog, then we, we stop, we tell the dog to sit, we pet the dog, and then we invite the other human over. And that way we can read our dog. And we want to start doing this. If we're going to socialize that way, we want to start doing this very, very young, where there's no danger. Because the dog's just not in, in, in a mood to do that. And if we do that, then that dog is never going to be a danger like that. You know, you'll have a dog that if he slips his collar or something, or you drop the leash and it goes running away, and there's some, because this is how our dog, Lakota, got off the leash one time, and he's running, and there's people like, you know, 100 yards away, and the dog's running, and I'm like, just call him. And they like, they call him, and I'm like, just pet him. And they pet him, the dog. So I just walk over and put the leash back on, the collar, I slip the collar back over his head, because he's laying on the ground getting his belly rubbed. Because he socialized. And his expectation was that strangers that called him would be nice to him and that they would pet him if he laid down. So I don't have to go running after the dog. Other people can willingly help me because the dog is trained that way. But the leash training is all about that energy. It's always about never, never letting the dog have an option to do anything but what you want. And that does not mean, you know, walking with your dog where he's getting choked and you're, he can barely put his feet on the ground. It doesn't mean that. It means that every time the dog breaks from the heel, no, and a jerk. No, and a jerk. Um, on different collar types for this, we have used both a standard choke collar and we've used pincher collars. <laughs> and we found that they all work and that the pincher collar, to me, is an effective training tool. I, and remember, I'm a person that loves my dog enough that if you shoot my dog, you're probably going to disappear. You, serious to God, you probably are. If you hurt my dog, you're probably just someday, people aren't going to know where you were, and you're just going to be gone. It's, that's how much I love my dog. But I will use pain when necessary. But the pincher collar, if used right, doesn't have to cause pain. Again, dogs communicate non-verbally with body language and physically with each other. A bite from the pack leader it does not have to be one that causes pain for it to be understood. The pack leader just said no very clearly in dog language. Much more clearly than that sound he makes that sounds like a weird bark that goes no. That's very clear. I don't have to be able to touch you to bite you. In fact, it's kind of magical that I can bite you without touching you through that magical string thing that connects us. So when we put the, the pinch collar on, And we carry that we want to hold the leash loosely. I like to hold the leash in two hands when I'm doing this. Uh, whatever side the dog's on, the, the, the terminal end of the leash is in the other hand. And then the leash goes through my, my guide hand onto the side of, and then we're just going to leave enough leash for that dog to be in a heel state, you know, not too far ahead, not too far back. And whenever he differs from it, just going to just jerk it sideways and say no and keep walking. And then randomly at times I'm going to say, stop, sit, good dog, get up, let's go. If you do that, you get a very socialized, very uh, leash-obedient dog. We just had our dogs on a leash uh, to take them to a vet last week. 
dogs. Charlie's been on a leash probably five times since he's been leash trained. Walked beautifully on a leash. The only problem we have with leash with Max is you let him see the leash. He knows he's probably going in the car, and he goes absolute batshit crazy excited. And he's getting older, and he has hip problems. I'm afraid he's going to hurt himself. So we have to like not let Max see the leash. And then we just happen to be outside, and we open the car door and tell him to get in. He gets in the car, and then we put the leash on him. Because otherwise he just goes freaking bonkers. Now, I could correct that, but it's not necessary. So we, we really haven't done that. And what's funny is when we're once we've gone and we're coming home, and you get the leash out or whatever, if you've let him off to run, it's he doesn't do that. It's only when he first sees, oh, boy, we're going to go. He, he loves to go. Um, socializing in public places, we kind of talked about that. But my real view on that is it's a good thing, and it should be started very young. Um, dog parks, stores that allow dogs, whatever. Um, I'm talking three months old or younger. As soon as the dog is old enough to put on a leash and be reasonable on a leash, it's a great idea to get them out, train them, train the commands, and train them that other humans are okay. This will not make a dog that just thinks it's okay for anybody to come into your property. Um, about the best thing you can do if you want a dog to not let people in your property is have a perimeter fence. You almost have to do no training whatsoever for that dog to view it this way. If you're in the fence, it's okay. If you come through the gate, it's okay. If they let you in, it's okay. If you're out there and I don't know who you are, and you look like you're trying to come in, but you look like you're not sure about things, my ass hair is up and I don't want you in here. Our dogs, we've never, I, I can't even tell you how to train that because we've never had to. It's, it's, it's always been that way. Uh, my black lab, Blackie, this dog was the, the nicest dog in the world to strangers. This dog loves strangers. He went out, if he got away, you go look for him, okay? You did not climb the fence with Blackie. Guy knocks on the door one day and says, I need to access the cable pedestal in your backyard for your neighbor's, neighbor's cable service. I was like, Go ahead, just go back there. He goes, no, there's a dog back there. I said, oh, he's fine, just go through the gate. And I look at him, and I realize he looks scared. And I'm like, did you try to go back there? He goes, yeah. I said, did you go through the gate? He goes, no, I was in the neighbor's yard, and I saw the pedestal, so I tried. I just climbed the fence. To, I'm like, oh, no, he he doesn't like that. He wouldn't believe me. I had to go back there with him. Um, he was convinced this dog was going to kill him because he tried to climb the fence. I, again, I can't tell you how to train that behavior. I can just tell you that when you create that environment, generally that's the natural behavior that the dog has. They understand, this is my perimeter. You're not allowed in here unless you come in certain ways. The ways I've seen other people come in, and if you're violating that, it's not cool. right? And then they tend, dogs tend to just have an alert when there's something outside the house. I, we don't train that either. What we actually train is the ability to shut it off. Okay, we see it. It's okay. Done. When the dog barks, I never say, no, you're bad. I say, good boy, come here. It's okay. Done. And the dog goes to bark again, no. Because I don't want to discourage the initial behavior. I want the dog to know, you've done the job, you've told the pack leader, pack leader's calling off the alert, all is well. Okay. Um, when it comes to training dogs around... Your stock, your livestock. I think one of the people, things that people are most impressed with with my dogs is you see my dog in some of the videos with the ducks where he's got his head in the, the house, the duck house, and I'm opening the door, and like the ducks are flying past him on the way out, and he doesn't even turn his head. 
He's just like, what's going on in there? And the ducks are flying past him. No aggression whatsoever. Um, it's not that hard. It really isn't that hard to do. But again, it understands the dog, understanding the dog's psychology and maintaining control and property ener proper energy levels. And in Charlie's case, for additional training, an electric collar. Um, that has probably been the, the, the best shortcut we've ever purchased in training a dog. Charlie is the first dog I ever used an electric collar with. It forever changed my opinion of them. I always thought they seem valid, but it seems like it could be abusive. And the reality is the correction is required so infrequently that it removes so many other times when you have to use harsh correction that the one or two periods of major discomfort are totally worth it. Now, Nick Ferguson uses a training collar, and he says, I won't use any technology on my dog that I wouldn't use on myself. So his solution was to turn it all the way up on the highest setting, put it on his leg and set it off and electrocute himself, and realize, yes, it hurts, yes, it sucks, but as soon as it stops, it's gone, and now I feel comfortable with it. Having been subject to um, being not tased but uh, used a stun gun on me as part of my training and having been popped more than once by an electric fence... I already know this, I don't need any more of it, and I'm happy to use the training collar the way that it, and, and just accept that it's, it's valid. The collar I use for Charlie is called the dog truck collar, okay? It has from settings from zero to like 140. I don't know what 140 does, I don't need to know. Because I believe in using minimal correction, The, the, the smallest amount of correction necessary to get the dog's attention. That's why I like this collar. It has such a wide variety of frequencies. And um, this is a tool. And any tool can be used effectively or ineffectively. And sometimes you can use a tool two different ways, and both of those ways are effective. I can use a hammer to bang a nail in. I can also flip it around and use the claw side to pull a nail out. It depends on what do I want to happen. Do I want a nail in or do I want a nail out? I can also use a hammer to bang apart two pieces of wood when I can't get the hammer on the nail. So there's multi and I can get the, the claw in between that and kind of pry the wood out like a pry bar. So there's multiple techniques and tactics that can be used for a single tool. The training collar is one of those. Nick Ferguson has a wonderful podcast on training dogs, more toward the livestock guardian dog side of things. And the way he used his training collar on the dog... He had a dog that was attacking chickens. Now, he wants a dog that you just put outside and leave with the chickens all the time. And the dog had got to the point where it knew he didn't want it to go after the chickens. So it would watch and look around and see if there was a human around. And if not, then he'd go after a chicken. So what Nick did was put the collar on the dog for about a week. Take it on, put it off, take it on, put it off. It's just a thing. It's not The collar is not the thing to, to Dick's dog. Sets it all the way up on high. One day after about a week of this, and the collar not being the thing, they, he sets up the dog. He puts a, a rooster that he really didn't care about, so if the dog got the rooster, eh, whatever. And he sets it up where the dog's out there, and they're hiding and watching the dog. And the dog's looking around for a human and doesn't see a human, and starts sneaking up on the rooster, and then eventually goes for it. And just as he's about to touch the rooster... Bam, that collar goes off. And to that dog, the electric bird bit her. And she's running away from the electric bird, and boom, that lightning bird got her again two more times. And oh my God, you never do that to a chicken ever again. That works. 
I have no problem with that method, and that method may work for you. But again, Nick's training livestock guardian dogs. I'm training a dog that lives in my house, that goes in and out all the time, that I want to be able to move around with my animals, that is more of a general farm dog than a guard dog. Okay? So I don't mind the dog knowing what the collar does. That's fine. Because the collar is just a remedial training aid for the dog. So we put the collar on the dog, and when the dog would be aggressive with the, the ducks, we'd say no, and we would zap the dog. Well, this is how that worked. I don't know how much correction it's going to take, so I set the pulse strength, remember this goes from like 0 to 144, to like 15. Seems like a pretty low setting. And the dog gets aggressive with the birds, and I let him have it, and no reaction. Okay? So then we physically correct the dog, and we turn it up a little bit more. We walked around the farm, and then we watch for the dog to get aggressive. Dog gets aggressive with a bird, and I have a sit on 25. Hit the thing, no response from the dog. Grab the dog, no. Okay, fine. 34. Don't know why I picked it. Seemed like a good number. 34 is a number for Charlie. Took a little while before he went after a bird again. Goes after a bird, no. Boom. Yipe! Okay. Now I got your attention. Now the behavior is linked to a negative consequence. The other time we used it, Charlie had this thing with attacking weed eaters, which is not that big a deal, but you don't like it, and all power tools, including things like chainsaws. I love my dog. I don't want him hurt, and a chainsaw wound is horrific. I've seen it on several different people. It's, it's awful. Awful. Even if it's just a brief contact wound, it is so awful. Shatters bone. It's, it's one of the worst wounds you can get, in my opinion. This has to be corrected. Training collar goes on. Charlie goes through. So we take the chainsaw with no chain on it, so there's no potential for an accident. I run the chainsaw. Charlie runs with the chainsaw. Yipe! Don't do that. Okay? I think there's about three or four different times he's actually been zapped by the collar in almost three years now. The collar gets used for remedial training all the time now, though. The collar goes on when the training is weak and loose, and it seems like we're losing our discipline, our self-discipline, so now we have to reestablish it, and it goes on zero, so I don't mess up and push the wrong button, and it has a thing on it that says page. And it's just like the old-school pagers where the pager would vibrate on your hip, right? I'll tell you a funny story about the pager in just a second. But all I have to do is say no, and if no, and I say no first. I, I give the dog the opportunity to listen to the command without the remedial training. But if that doesn't work, bzz, and the dog will stop immediately. Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm supposed to listen. Because remember, the dog wants to make you happy. And then that negative consequence, the vibration is a reminder. This could suck worse. All right. The immediate follow-up to that is, good boy. Oh, good, I did good, I did good. Yeah, I did good. It's fun to do good. The, do the dog should feel that way. Like, doing the right thing is fun. Doing the right thing is great. I just need to remember what it is in the now. In the four seconds, right, the immediate now, two seconds prior, two seconds future, that's where that dog lives. It's all about that time period. So you have to lock him in on it. Um, that's all I've had to do. And we've had students here, and we've demonstrated that. We have. I have a, a green gas um blowback air uh, gun uh, that you shoot the plastic pellets out of. And we had students shooting at one of the events, and the dog is jumping at the gun. 
I haven't done a lot of firearms training with him. I, I don't really have the ability to shoot a lot of firearms here on the property. .22 is about it. Just out of, it's not a legality issue. It's I have close neighbors, and I don't have a really good spot to shoot that's safe and responsible. So we're shooting the, the, the air gun, and he's jumping at it. I go get the collar, put the collar on him. No, zzz, no, zzz. about four or five of those, and all of a sudden people are shooting, the dog's happy. Now, how much negative reinforcement would be necessary to gain that control over that dog had I not had that supplemental tool and had he not experienced extreme discomfort a few times? And the totality of the negative is much higher without it than with it. That's why I'm a fan of them. And I think you can use it in a way that fits for you. But my big thing is I want to use it at the minimum level of acceptable correction, which is as soon as the dog gives me what he wants, we're done. And what's amazing about this is sometimes to remind Charlie, because Charlie is a impetuous animal. He really is. He's, I would say, on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the most difficult dog in the world to train and 1 being Max, who was like you taught him a few things and he just – did what he was supposed to do. Charlie's like an, a 7 to an 8. He's not a 10, but he's like a 7 to an 8. He doesn't have psycho problems or something like that. He's not damaged like some dogs are, uh, psychologically damaged dogs that are afraid and aggressive and what have you. But he's impetuous and he's stubborn. Even with that, he knows the remote control to the collar is a little device you hold in your hand. And you can at times, when he's like, you're telling him no, and he looks at you like, I'm going to do it anyway, you pull your cell phone out, and you show him the cell phone, you say no. And he's like, oh yeah. Now, he knows he's not wearing his collar, but what you've done is you've reinforced, hey, listen, I really mean what I'm saying right now. I, this is not a request, this is a command. And always remember, command is not a request. Um... The message the dog has to be given is that any and all aggression against stock is not acceptable. If you want to be able to use a dog for some herding and moving of things, you have to get the dog to the point where there's no aggression first. Because get that animal. Move them. Go after them. That's easy. Don't do it's hard. We always, when you have things that are like a yin and yang, take it and leave it. Come or stay. We always train the difficult one first. So that the easy one has a control, a stop button. So you've already learned not to be aggressive to the animals. Now there's a whole bunch of ducks crapping on the porch, and I want them off. Charlie, move them off the porch, and you make the motion. He starts to go. He gets too aggressive. No, stop. If you don't train the control first, you can end up not being able to be upset with the dog that's harmed your animal because you gave him the command to do it, as far as he knows. He doesn't understand what you've asked. But when he already knows aggression is not acceptable, then this must just mean we want them out of here. And it, it works really good. And there are things, when you train a dog right, that they pick up on their own that I don't think they would ever pick up on their own if you didn't train them right. Here's an example. We have a lot of Muscovy ducks, and we have quite a few Muscovy drakes. The Muscovy drakes fight. It's not like the, the drakes will kind of like peck at each other and other from the normal. This is like combat. They lock up, and they wing-beat the hell out of each other. And these fights can be a couple seconds to you know, quite a few minutes sometimes until one yields. Charlie doesn't like them fighting. So when they fight, his ears go up, he locks onto them, he runs over, and he breaks them up. 
And as soon as they're broken up, he stops. I didn't teach him to do that. He alerted on a pair fighting, and because I had the control of not to harm them, I, I, I went ahead and let it play out and waited to see what he did. And as soon as they broke up, I said, stop. He stopped. He looked at me. Good dog. Come here. Sit. Good boy. So that right there, that kind of backed up his natural innate thing that he picked up with the control. Okay, once they stop, I'm done. And I've also seen him break up excessive breeding. Sometimes you get a hen and she's just getting hammered. You know, two or three drakes trying to climb on her at once. And he sees them breed all the time. He doesn't do anything. When he sees that a lot of times, he'll go break it up. He realizes this is not cool. On that note, part of why the show's out so late today, I took nine drakes to the uh, processor this morning. That took me out of pocket for a couple hours because I have too much of that going on right now, just as an aside. So the funny story about the pager before I move on uh, to the, the final part of the show today. Um, back in the 90s when I worked for Lockheed, I worked at their, um, their what do you call it, campus in Grand Prairie, huge campus. I mean, the, the place was so big that they had two prefixes for their phone numbers, 603 and 604. Not area codes, but prefix, you know, the first three numbers, for, for, so that everybody could have a phone line and fax lines and stuff like that. They have more than 10,000 numbers. Give you an idea how big this complex is. And several of the buildings in the roofs have asbestos. And the conventional thing on asbestos is it's better to leave it alone and not mess with it than to take it out in many instances, which is true. So you can't work in the ceilings. Well, cables usually run in ceilings. So we ran all the cabling under the floor, and I had a pager when they were, it was, it was something that people had, right? People actually used to use them. And I had it set to vibrate. And down under this building, you would be crawling in the concrete just over your head. And, I mean, you couldn't stand up. You couldn't even really stoop very well. You could stoop, but there were, like, these big I-beams. And you could stoop in between them. And if you were directly under them, you had to pretty much be on your hands and knees. So we're down there running some fiber optic cable one day. And there were rats down there and spiders and shit. And my pager goes off on vibrate. And it's, it would happen to just be, like, right on your hip bone. And it was the way I was bent, where it really pulsed. And I didn't realize what it was, and I freaked out, and I came up, and I busted my head on the concrete, and I started beating the shit out of my pager. And then I looked around and realized that none of the guys working for me saw it, you know, the flashlight flying or whatever, and I just went on with my business, and nobody saw it. Another time, when I first got a pager, very first pager ever, I worked for MCI, and I was in a uh, job where I traveled a lot, and I had my pager on the headboard of the, the bed at the hotel, and it starts vibrating, and it's like, Bleh. You guys know what I'm talking about. And the dispatch lady, because they needed me to go to El Paso, keeps paging me over and over and over again until I answer, because it's like 3 o'clock in the morning. And they need me to leave, like, now. And finally, the pager gets to the edge of the headboard, flies off, and hits me in the forehead. And, oh, that's a pager. That's what they do. I mean, I literally had it, like, two days. So that's the, the pager stories. So wrapping it up, I think what you really need to understand with dogs, this is where it all stems from. First of all, a command is not a request. A command is a command. And it's like, and I think maybe being in the military has helped me with, with my relationship with dogs as well. When you're told by your sergeant to drop and give them 10 because you did something wrong, you have to do push-ups, it's not a request. There's, there's no whether or not you're going to do it about it. You're going to do it. And it's given that way. All right. So the dog has to have a command given the same way, with an expectation. 
If you don't have the expectation, you won't get the result. In fact, you always have an expectation. Okay, When you tell somebody to do something, you ask a dog to do something, whatever, you have an expectation. And if you don't have an expectation that he will do it, your expectation is something lesser. He might do it. He probably won't do it, whatever it is. That energy, that dog senses that energy and knows that it's not being given as a command. And therefore, it's subject to interpretation. The dog doesn't have the words or the psychology to explain it that way, but that's what's going on. Since, since it's not a directive, I'm only going to do this if I want to. Where, oh, that's a directive from the pack leader. Screw it. I ought to do this. That, I mean, that's a huge part of it. And, and you can use physical correction without pain. I use it frequently. We still have some issues with Charlie, as good as a dog as he is, in certain situations. The other day, we were working with the turkeys in the brooder, and the baby turkeys. By the way, if you guys heard the peeping all last week, I had several like I heard quail in the background, or chickens in the background, ducks. In the, those were turkeys. We had turkey poults in a brooder for a week in the house. And um, so my grandson's there playing with the turkeys because the turkeys are biting them. And he's putting his hand in, like the turkeys are biting them and dangling off his hand. And Charlie's like trying to get in, and Dorothy comes over, and, and Charlie snaps at the two of them. Now, he doesn't bite them, but he snaps at them like as, as a sign, like, these are my turkeys. And I'm there, and she said he snapped. And remember I said two seconds? I got it right now before those two seconds expire. I grabbed that dog by his neck, and I put him to the ground. And I held him down. And I hand bit him, which is you take the hand and you squeeze the neck. Not enough to hurt. Not enough to even begin. This dog's tough. I mean, you could probably pick him up by his neck skin and he'd be okay. But, I mean, even for a little dog, this wouldn't hurt. But it was forceful and physical and to the ground. No. That was a point where you've shown aggression toward another member of the pack. I don't care whether you were going to do it or not. This correction is immediate and it is physical. But there was no requirement. If I hit that dog at that point, if I smack him, what I actually do is I actually, he might respond in that second by curtailing his aggression, but pain and violence begets pain and violence. So if you watch wild canines in a situation where one corrects the other one forcibly, They'll, ah, and their teeth come out, and they look like they're going to tear each other apart. They don't draw, they usually don't draw blood. It's an aggression toward the, and there's like the movement like it's going to bite, but they don't really bite, and the other dog will submit and yield and say, okay, I get it. That's how you handle this. Now, remember I said, if you have a dog that's an older dog and it's already set his ways, you haven't been working with us, so there's certain things you could do that could initiate a problem where you could have your dog bite you, this is one of them. What I just described is considered by many trainers to be high-risk training to, to handle a dog that way. This is what I'm saying. If the dog has been handled that way, both in training and in play its whole life, then it's not high-risk. But if you have a five-year-old dog that snaps and bites all the time and you grab it and do that to it, especially if you don't know what you're doing, there's a good chance that dog may read that as serious aggression from someone that's never never established himself as the true pack leader before and will respond with greater aggression. And, and I, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be honest with you, that type of behavior, I don't know how to correct it because I've never had to. I've never had to correct it because I've always started with dogs young enough 
and with the right disposition to begin with so that the training methods that I use were sufficient. And I've never let the problems grow to a point where they're not easily corrected. That's the biggest problem people have with dogs. They let the problems become chronic. They let the problems grow to the point where the dog feels like the behavior is acceptable. And therefore, when you're telling the dog not to, now the dog has a lot to resist. Now the dog has a lot to resent. You know, I mean, it's like never making a child do his homework. Kids getting F's. No one's ever done anything about it. And one day you walk in and say, no more of this crap. You're going to do your homework every night. That's a lot harder to get a kid doing his homework than having him do his homework every day from the first time he ever gets homework. Just like the toilet training. It's easy to train the dog not to pee in the house. We never give the dog the opportunity to pee in the house. It's, it's, it's so simple if we do it that way. And again, you have to expect that the animal will respond to you. And I want to give a lot of caution with that. Some of the, some of the methods I use, like the hand bite, the takedown, right? I'll take the dog right to the ground. Right? But as I'm doing that, I might sit down. So the dog already knows that command. So now I'm just going down, but wait a minute, the hand's on my, on my neck. The pack leader's upset with me. And I know what I did because it was immediate. Now, if I walked in the room and it had been two minutes and Dorothy would have said, he just snapped at us, I, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to do anything. Because the dog won't connect... There's no reason for it. What I'm probably going to do is I'm going to take the dog over because I have better control and I'm going to engage with the dog and the birds and then I'm going to bring my wife over and then I'm going to bring my grandson over and we're going to engage in behavior that says this is the way it's supposed to be and if there's any snapping or anything like that then we're going to, then we're going to go to the ground. Okay? Got to be careful with that. I know that dog's not going to bite that kid because things like Like, you understand what I mean by snap. I don't mean actually trying to bite him. But we've had things recently where he'll, he'll like bite him in the head and stuff. He's trying to play with him. That's not acceptable as well. So, to, if that happens, to the ground. No, we don't do that. We don't do that. And, and, and this type of thing, again, I've been doing this since I was a teenager. And I'm in my 40s. That's a lot of years. I know my dogs, I know myself, I know my limits, and I don't want anybody to take my advice and misapply it in some way that causes a problem. So please understand that this is the frame of reference I'm giving it to you on, and I'm assuming that you're going to do a few things. One, you're going to begin your training when the dog's very young. Uh, two, you're going to look for the right disposition in the dog when you select a dog. And we can finish up with a little bit on that. I didn't plan on it, but people said to me, when they saw my dog, you know, with birds and little baby ducks running around them and stuff and the geese, you know, biting on them and the dog just sitting there looking at them like, what are you doing? You know, that I was stupid because it was, un it was unreasonable for me to expect a bird dog pit bull mix to work with birds. I didn't pick Charlie for his breed. I picked him for his personality. I picked him because he was courageous but not aggressive. I picked him because he was alert and attentive. I picked him because I could tell immediately that we had a relationship bond that could grow. That's how I pick a dog. Above breed, above any other... Now, if you don't have room for a big dog, don't get a St. Bernard, right? If you don't like dogs that drool, don't get a St. Bernard or like a bulldog. There are certain breeds that have certain intrinsic characteristics that if they're out and out for you, 
then you should look for other breeds. But in selecting amongst the breeds that you're looking for, look for the dog that when you look at the dog, you know there's a bond and it's not in your head. And I'll tell you an example of this. We had very recently lost Blackie when I got Charlie. And we were at the pet store, and it was in a time that was definitely considered by most people too soon to get a new dog type of thing, right? And I, I walk into the animal adoption thing in the back of PetSmart, and there's this little black and white pup. And I look at him, and I go, that's my dog. That's my dog. I know that's my dog. And I went over, and I you know, opened the thing and pet him and closed it back up, and I'm like, we should get this dog. So I'm like, okay, you just lost the dog you had for 16 years, and you're an emotional guy when it comes to dogs. You know, it, it's like a, you fill in a back fill in a hole or something. So don't do something stupid. So I walk around the whole. There's like about 30 dogs in this place, and they're all cute. You know, they're, most of them are pups. I'm like, not my dog, not my dog, not my dog, not my dog. Get back around and go. That's my dog. I called Dorothy. I'm like, there's come back. You got to see this dog. She's like, we're all ready. I'm like. Comes, she looks at him, she's like, oh my god, that's her dog. I'm like, that's what I said. We get him out, we get him into the little play area, and I, I judge his mannerisms, how he behaves. You pet him, he doesn't get freaked out and pee himself. I don't have a dog with any kind of emotional damage, no emotional baggage. This dog is a happy, alert dog. And I'm like, okay, it all fits. Everything else can be handled with training. And I know there's a lot of older dogs that need homes, And if you can be a home for an older dog, God bless you. I believe in rescue dogs. All of our dogs have been rescue animals. I'm not saying to get older, not to get an older dog, but I'm, I am saying when it comes to dealing with a dog, it's going to be around stock. It's going to be around chickens or ducks or something like that. It is so much easier if you get a pup that is not physically capable yet of really being harmful to them so that they grow up with them and it's just never in their head that they're going to, you know, harm them. And the only reason we ever had to do this with Charlie, Charlie came up just like that, and his electric collar came in because one day we left him alone for like half a day and he killed a chicken. It was the first It was the first time we ever saw him be aggressive. He was probably just playing with it, but he played with it to death. And immediately we brought in the electric collar and that corrective training. If I had to do it over again, I would have started out with the collar. I would have started out with the collar right away. You just don't do that. And we would have never had that bird killed. But that also breaks another thing. Once a dog kills a chicken, he's always going to kill chickens, tie the chicken to his neck, beat him with the chicken, or shoot the dog, because there's no, just nonsense, stupid, redneck bullshit, right? Dog killed a chicken, corrective action, dog doesn't kill birds anymore. Very, very simple. So hopefully that helps you. With that in mind, I want to remind you, if you like this show and you want to support the work I do, you can join the Member Support Brigade. Just do, to do that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. And the other way that you can support us, and this way is so easy, I'm really going to ask that you consider doing it all the time. When you're going to do some shopping and you're going to buy something from Amazon, just go to tspaz.com first. tspaz.com first. That's all you got to do. Go to tspaz, one letter less than Amazon, shop on Amazon. Do nothing else different. Type one less letter, shop on Amazon, and all your sales go toward our sales, and then that way we actually get some money from Amazon every month. There's probably not an easier way to support our show than that, and it literally costs you nothing because you were going to shop there anyway. Also remember, don't just worry about supporting me. Support each other in this community. Um, and what, one of the ways you can do that is by using the TSP Business Directory. Uh, the TSP Business Directory is where you can be found or find other members of the community that are running their own business. 
And uh, today's uh, supporting member of the TSP Business Directory is called Sustainable Business Planning. They provide workshops in accounting and business planning to help farmers and entrepreneurs get started in business. You can check them out at the TSP Business Directory, and you'll find them in a link in today's show notes as well. If you want to check them out, please do so. And please remember, you can be featured in the Business Directory with your business for as little as five bucks a year. How great is that? And you can do business with all 150,000 community members. And remember, when you're using the business directory, please leave them reviews. And on that note, of course, uh, MT Knives is a business born right out of the TSP community with a stakeholder program. Uh, Patrick Roman makes wonderful, amazing custom knives. Uh, the knife that I carry every day of my life is one version or the other of the Genesis. And the Genesis 2 and TSP Special Edition with the TSP logo is on sale right now for $99. And those of you that are MSB members, you can get it for $89. Uh, they're only going to be taking orders for another few days. Uh, there's a post out today on the blog, and it's, it says that it will be for a couple more days, whatever that means from whatever Kelly means by that. And uh, But if you want to get one, I would you know step up and do it now. Uh, because it's an amazing deal on a knife and the uh, custom TSP logo. Uh, we don't do those and make that available at all times, especially the Genesis 2, uh, an incredible knife for only 89 bucks. Are you kidding me? I bought one myself at full price, guys, because I was that impressed with the price, the quality, and the value. And I have quite a few Genesis already. With that wrapped up, um, let's talk about today's song of the day. Um, This is a song by Chris Ledoux. I've played a lot of stuff by Chris Ledoux for you. And this one is a country song. This is cowboy music, really. It really is. And Chris Ledoux is one of those rare people that really was a cowboy and really was a musician and was damn good at both. Uh, he was a national champion saddle bronc, bronc rider, and he probably would have rode longer, but he was had some serious injuries uh, that he fought through to, to get that you know, championship belt buckle. And uh, this was a guy, I think his parents said it was like, Two weeks after he rode his first bronc as a kid, he was winning you know, junior rodeos. Uh, but he had this wild, crazy style. And he took that wild, crazy style into his music. And uh, just some amazing stuff. And so, you know, some stuff, the crossover rock stuff, and, and just great stuff. And some real cowboy music. I mean, real rodeo music as well. Um, this song's somewhere in between, like, mainstream country and, you know, your rodeo songs. It's not really a rodeo song, but it really ain't mainstream either. It's called Western Skies. And it came out in 1992. In 1992, I was still in the Army, and I was in Panama. And I knew I wasn't going to stay in. And all I wanted to do was come home. And I've always been a country boy at heart. I've always loved the mountains. And when I heard this song the first time, I remember thinking to myself, These are the things that I value and that I want in my life. And I couldn't wait to finish up my obligation, turn in everything, and come home. I'm proud of my service. I don't care what anybody says and the detractors from you know uh, military service and the libertarian and anarchist community, anti-war community. I'm, I'm a very anti-war person, but I... I'm proud of my service because I was willing at 17, I joined the Army at 17 years old, I had my dad sign so I could leave, um, to sacrifice my own freedom to do something that I believed in. And I gained a lot from my military service. Not so much that I could get jobs or something like that, but the leadership training and, and what have you. But I really understood quite quickly that this would be a thing I would do for a number of years, and then I would say... I've done my job, farewell, and I would go home. And when I heard this song, 
all I wanted to do was go home and ironically leave. That I, I didn't want to, to be in small town rural Pennsylvania. I wanted to go west. And I ended up here in Texas. And I don't have the Rocky Mountains here, but I do have the western skies. And I don't think I'd have it any other way. So I chose the song not because it's some you know deep meaning message, but because it has a, a, an interesting connection for me. And it, it also kind of points to the idea of work for your dreams, guys. Work for your dreams. Whether it's a homestead, whether it's a business, whether it's a family, whether it's a career, whatever it is, work for it. Because it's worth it. And you may find in the end that what you're really looking for is a little bit different than what you had in mind. But take those steps down that path. Keep on seeking those western skies. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. My Nashville friends think I'm strange to make my home out on the range. They think it's nothing but a God-forsaken land. Why don't you bring your guitar and family move on down to Tennessee? Well, I just smile because they don't understand. But if they ever saw sunrise on a mountain morning, and watch those cotton candy clouds go by, then they'd know why I live beneath these western skies. I got peace of mind and elbow room I love to smell the sage in bloom I catch a rainbow on my fishing line We got county fairs and rodeos Ain't a better place for my kids to grow Just turn them loose in the western summertime And if you ever held your woman on summer's evening While the prairie moon was blazing in her eyes You know why I live beneath these western skies You ain't lived until you watch those northern lights Sit around the campfire and hear the coyotes call at night Makes you feel alright So guess I'll stay right where I'm at Wear my boots and my cowboy hat But I'll come and see you once in a while Bring my guitar and sing my songs Sorry if I don't stay too long I love Tennessee, but you know it just ain't my style I gotta be where I can see those rocky mountains Ride my horse and watch an eagle fly I gotta live my life and write my songs Beneath these western skies When I die, you can bury me beneath these western skies.
Yippee-yay.